Well, thank you, Dave. It's wonderful to be back on the Good News at UD show. And we have a very special guest today, Professor Carter Sneed of the Law School at the University of Notre Dame. He is also the director of the De Nicola Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture and a concurrent professor of political science. And I first got to know Carter, I think, through um, the Center for Ethics and Culture, although I was at another university. I can't remember the timing when we had you out at Franciscan. It was 2008, I think. 2008. uh, But you've been with the center since 2012, okay, as the director. So it was prior to that. Um, That center does remarkable things in helping to build up Catholic culture on the campus of the University of Notre Dame and also um, more broadly across the United States. So thank you for your work there and at the law school. It really is a tremendous service. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for all you do at the University of Dallas, which, and I say this as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, an indispensable Catholic university uh, in the world. And it shapes students and produces scholarship and and provides services uh, around the world in ways that are absolutely essential to the flourishing of Catholic culture. And and I couldn't be more honored than being here with you uh, at the University of Dallas. Well, well, thank you. Well, it's fortunate you're you're in the law school. So we'll do the undergrad, and then we'll send them your way. <laughs> Perfect. We love UD students. I've had amazing UD students over the 16 years I've been at Notre Dame Law School. Awesome. Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about this book. It's it's had a lot of discussion over the last couple of years, um, or year and a half, I should say, right? What it means to be human. And um, could you talk to us a little bit about the thesis of this book and, and why that thesis is so significant at this cultural moment? Yeah, absolutely. So the title, the full title of the book is What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And in the book, I make two claims, a sort of methodological claim about how best to understand public bioethics, which is the law and public policy that connects to advances in biomedical science, biotechnology, and in the practice of medicine. It's really the governance. Public bioethics is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. Mm-hmm. And the argument that I, the methodological argument of the book is that to, the richest way to understand public bioethics as an area of law and policy is to drill down and ask the question of what vision of the human person and human flourishing is anchoring and animating the laws and policies that we're under discussion. Mm-hmm. And that might seem counterintuitive to someone. Like what, what is, you, know, you, you might term that question sort of an anthropological question, what it means to be and flourish as a human being. Why does that ha- – what does that have anything to do with law and policy or politics? And the answer is that all laws aim at, uh, aim at the uh, promotion of, of, the, uh, of the flourishing of human beings and the protection of human beings. Law would be arbitrary and capricious at best if it didn't have that ultimate goal in mind. And because law is designed for and, and implemented for the protection of persons and for their, the promotion of their flourishing, uh, it has to operate according to a prior understanding of what a person is or mm-hmm. who a person is. And so the deepest – at the very deepest level, if we want to understand the law and to offer a critique or a defense of it, you have to really ask the question of what this law assumes you and I are Mm -hmm. and what we need and what what we need to be protected from and what we need to be incentivized to pursue or or disincentivized from. Uh, And so that's the kind of um, methodological argument that the anthropological question is the fundamental question for understanding law and public policy. And that is especially true Mm -hmm. of public bioethics, which deals with questions of human identity and human frailty and vulnerability as well as even the boundaries of the moral and legal community. Who counts as a human being? Who counts as one of us? Mm -hmm. Whose good is part of the common good? Mm -hmm. Um, And when you 
train that form of analysis on what I call the vital conflicts of American public bioethics, abortion, the law of abortion, the law relating to assisted reproduction and the law connected to end-of-life decision-making, what comes to the surface is a vision of the person in American law that is impoverished and incomplete in a way as to be actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a vision of the person – that could be described using the terminology of philosophers Charles Taylor or social scientist Robert Bella as expressive individualism. Mm -hmm. And that sounds highfalutin, but when you describe it, it becomes immediately recognizable to anyone who is a, it lives in contemporary American or even, you know, a contemporary, you know, occupant of the planet. It's the idea that, uh, what, what defines a person is his or her will, uh, that the person is coextensive solely with his or her will or her mind. Uh, the body is a mere instrument to help pursue the projects of the will. And human flourishing consists in sort of interrogating the depths of the interior of the self, finding your own true, authentic truths, mm-hmm. uh, your own uh, your own originality, uh, expressing that, and then configuring your life accordingly to pursue those those uh, those unique and authentic truths that you can only find, really only you can find inside yourself. It's a vision of the person that's entirely abstracted from our relationships, our relationships to family, our relationships to tradition or church or state. Uh, and it's uh, and as an abstraction, it's false. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of vision of the person as an atomized individual will seeking to find his or her own authentic destiny. And everything else is instrumental, not just the body, but human relationships, even mm-hmm. familial relationships are instrumental. And so you see immediately that this is not a vision of the person that tracks with lived reality. It doesn't capture, doesn't even make sense of the kind of mutual dependence and vulnerability and subjection to natural limits that we have. And what I argue in the book is the fundamental flaw in this in this anthropology is it completely fails to understand the importance and meaning of the body. And, and the body is an integrated, integral part of our of our lives. That we are not we don't simply have bodies, but we are in sold bodies. We're the dynamic unity of body and mind. And to ignore the body is to ignore key aspects, inexorable aspects of our existence, our frailty, our vulnerability, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, to, and to, to be become blind to the vulnerability of our, of our neighbors or our obligations, our unchosen obligations to friends and neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that becomes – so it's a very poor foundation for public bioethics in areas where we're actually talking about frailty and vulnerability and sickness and, and death and birth and, and, and pregnancy and babies and, and so on. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you very much. You know, the, the um, Aristotle argues that you can only flourish as a kind of being you are. And, and here we have a, a view of the human person that is profoundly impoverished precisely because it doesn't take into account our embodiedness, our, our bodies, their limits. And, and we have a lot of misery in our culture that in many respects is, is highly successful. And yet people are are not flourishing precisely as human beings because they take this atomized approach to the human being and seek to maximize their preferences that, that come from this, so to speak, authentic self deep down inside that only they can identify and, and pursue. So thank you for identifying the problem. I know you draw deeply from Alistair McIntyre's treatment, particularly in Dependent Rational Animals, and, and when he reflects upon the, the virtues of acknowledged dependency, right, those virtues like misericordia or compassion and, and charity, more broadly speaking, right? Those are virtues that 
we recognize as necessary to our flourishing precisely because we don't flourish as individuals who are independent selves from others. We flourish by acknowledging the fact that we're dependent on others, they're dependent upon us, and in order for us to, to really build up a culture that has the common good at a, at a, a, a much greater depth than one that just looks for our, our, our preference maximization, then, then indeed um, we can flourish. Now, I, I, I tend to approach this purely philosophically. Um, when, I, when I teach classes on, on Alistair McIntyre or ethics, you're looking at the law in particular. You said something early on about you know, the law needs to take into account genuine goods and the promotion of the common good. And if it doesn't, then it's, it's a specious claim to be a law, right? So what, what are, as you see it, the legal ramifications of taking seriously our embodiment and the virtues of acknowledged dependence? Yeah, I, I think I would suggest first that you take a concrete case because this sounds a little abstract, right, as we talk back and forth between the virtues of acknowledged dependence as really the necessary virtues and practices for embodied beings to flourish because what embodied beings need to flourish are what McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving made of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good. To put it more shortly, I would say that by virtue of our embodiment and the entailments of our embodiment, we're made for love and friendship. Mm -hmm. And that's an essential reality of what it means to be a human being. And if we forget that, then we, we go wrong. And if we use that as a foundation for laws and public policies, we go wrong in a very dangerous way. But to make that more concrete and less abstract, let's talk a little bit about the law of abortion, which of course is in Texas is a big, a big issue right now with mm -hmm. the heartbeat bill and litigation. And then we've got the Dobbs case mm -hmm. coming up, uh, which will be argued on December 1st, which I think is actually going to be uh, I mean, it's a direct challenge to Planned, Parent, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe v. Wade, the two Supreme mm -hmm. Court precedents that govern abortion. And I think that really creates a – I actually think those cases are going to be overturned. I think mm -hmm. – I'm, I'm quite optimistic about what's well, going to happen. We can talk about that later if you'd like to. <laughs> but back to the thesis of the book, if you look at Roe v. Wade, if you look at Planned Parenthood versus Casey, these cases these, – these opinions invented a right to abortion – uh, that was not in any way connected to the text, history, or tradition of the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about abortion. The source of authority they point to is the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868 at a time when abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States mm -hmm. by, by codified law in 30 of 37 states, by common law everywhere. Um, <clears throat> and no one uh, alive in 1868 or really alive from 1868 to 1973 thought – Seriously, that the due process clause, which only guarantees that no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, meant that states couldn't protect unborn children from abortion. Right. They all did protect unborn children from abortion then and, and even later. But the court, instead of looking at the text, history, and tradition of the Constitution, does its own sort of philosophizing and says – and Justice Blackmun meditates in Roe v. Wade on the unique burdens of – unplanned pregnancy, not just pregnancy, but also unplanned parenthood of mm -hmm. having a child that's unwanted and is a burden, not just on the mother, but also on the family and the community, mm -hmm. and concludes that it must be the case that the Constitution, in an unenumerated way, that is an unwritten way, but nevertheless forceful way, protects a woman's right to choose to, to, to exercise lethal violence or have someone else on her behalf exercise lethal violence to eliminate this sort of stranger, this, this atomized other stranger that's something less than a person, the unborn child, deemed sort of by fiat by Justice Blackman to be less than a person. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of, he, he frames the whole question as a kind of clash of strangers, mm -hmm. unborn child, 
and and the woman who are fighting over sort of scarce resources, namely the woman's body, but not just the woman's body, but the woman's future yeah. and her plans for her future and her and her and her freedom. And um, and if you and you can see in that framing the anthropology of expressive individualism, right. you can see that it describes the human context of pregnancy in a way that is completely foreign to the lived reality of it. Ask any mother, is this a stranger? Is this an alien growing inside you? Right. That sounds like you know back to your philosophical background. That's Judith Jarvis Thompson. That's that's, right. that, that's not that's not biology. That's not lived reality. And to say, well, and if you and if you frame the question in this way, and and say, well, what, what's at stake is the woman's own self understanding and her own freedom and her own freedom to define an open future without mm-hmm. the burdens of this unwanted bodily intrusion. Then, if you frame it that way, which of course focuses on her as an atomized individual will and trying to to prioritize the will uh, uh, over the relationality of pregnancy of mother and child, ignoring entirely the relationship of mother and child. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it separates mothers and children and makes them into strangers, which they are not by nature. Strangers, they're deeply connected to each other, related to each other. It's mother and child. Mm-hmm. And so framing it as Justice Blackman did, you see the bias in the direction of the solution that he provides, which is a right to, uh, to, to, to use violence, mm-hmm. to exclude a usurping stranger uh, who wants what you have and is not entitled to it. That's a that's that's a that's a vision of reality that is a world of strife populated mm-hmm. by atomized wills seeking their own good, uh, in some cases having to overbear and destroy other wills yeah. or other beings or other obstacles. And then in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they just double down on this, and we get this passage from uh, what it was normally attributed to Anthony Kennedy, this sort of mystery of life passage, where they say at the heart of liberty is the freedom to define the mystery of life and one's open future, and you can't possibly have real liberty if those. Decisions are formed under the coercive power of the state. So you can see in the language that those two cases are an anthem to expressive individualism. And they go very badly wrong because they misdescribe the human context. And if you were to describe it in a humanly accurate way and to say what we're talking about is a mother and a child in crisis and recognize that relationality, recognize that – network of graceful uh, receiving and uncalculated giving par excellence, the parental child relationship, mm-hmm. then you would open up our thinking to how do we help them? How, do, how would any decent society, any decent government come to the aid of a mother and child and help? That's, that's the solution that, it, that, that is pointed towards when you frame it in a humanly truthful way. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that is an excellent reflection on, on the most basic problems with um, – the view of the human person and the kind of, of implications that that leads to lethal violence in the service of expressive individualism. That's, that's where we are. And, um, you know, God willing, um, we're going to move away from that legally very soon. And we, we need to do more work to build up an understanding of what it is to be a human person. And I want to uh, shift to a reflection upon what kind of education can lead to that deeper understanding at the University of Dallas, and, and I know you're a grad of, of St. John's College in, in Annapolis, an excellent great book school. Um, we've both been blessed with with really um, the fruits of a, a excellent education, liberal education that emphasizes the great books. And offering that kind of education to future generations of, of students, whether they're Catholic or not, yields, I think, this kind of rich understanding of the human person how, do, how does it do so? Yeah. 
What, what, what do you see as the, the most basic features? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and also, I, I would mention here um, the, the Trinity schools also, by the way. Uh, you, I think you went to Trinity. I went to Trinity in, in South Bend. My 16-year-old goes to Trinity School at Green Lawn, and mm-hmm. I, I love that's an amazing place, and I'm, I'm always impressed by it, the emphasis that they place on the, on the sort of humanistic formation through yes. this process. But University of Dallas is, is exactly the right example to take here. I mean, it's an entire university with a strong core curriculum devoted to forming the human person in a way that is that is consistent with what a person really is. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, a, a great humanistic education, like the one you all provide at Dallas, uh, first of all, creates kind of habits of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of virtues of humility uh, in terms of in terms of one's relationship to these ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're confronted if if you're formed the right way and the educational framework is the right way as it is at Dallas, you come you come in as a sort of probably cocky freshman, and you're pretty quickly if you're if you're paying attention stripped down and you realize, wow, I don't know everything that 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 uh, that I thought I knew. In mm-hmm. fact, what I need to do is read these texts carefully, yeah. and I need to be humble before these ideas and before these thinkers, even if I don't have to valorize them or I don't have to worship them, but I, but I do have to think seriously about what they're saying and understand how to read a text and be humble before these books and these ideas. Mm-hmm. And what that ultimately and – and humility, by the way, is a very important virtue of acknowledged dependence. Yes. I mean the kind of willfulness and rational mastery that's at the core of expressive individualism is antithetical to the, to the humility that one has from being formed properly in the humanities. Right. Um, but then in the substance of the work itself, I mean, what you're reading itself is basically about what it means to be human. Right. Um, you know, the motto, uh, the Latin motto of St. John's College is, I make free men from children using books in a balance. Yeah. And that's what, what liberal education is, is not education to free you to do whatever you want. It's to, free, it's to give you the freedom to pursue the good as it exists, to understand what it is. Right. So studying the, the great works of Western civilization, especially through the lens of a wonderful Catholic university such as yours, whether you're a Catholic student or not, uh, this is this is what it means to learn what it is to be a human being, and also living in community, yes. uh, a special kind of community like the ones you all foster at, at Dallas, uh, where people take seriously their obligations to one another uh, and to the common good, um, and learn that they are not simply an individual seeking to work their will on the environment around them, but rather mm-hmm. collaborate together in a network of giving and receiving. Yeah, no, that's that's. Really outstanding. The the um, I sometimes think of our education as a kind of friendship for the sake of friendship, right? You and speaking analogically, we cultivate a friendship with with the truth through our encounter with the tradition. Um, but the friendship between students, the friendships between professors and students, and ultimately the friendship with God, right? And and it makes a difference to be at an institution that's Catholic, where we've got the divine liturgy celebrated several times a day on our campus. It's the beating heart of our campus. And there's a humility before the the source of all truth that you just would miss if if you weren't able to engage in that kind of opportunity. Our our tradition, you know, law and and um, uh, builds on on case precedent, it builds on tradition. So too does framing an education that really humanizes, right? So we learn about what it is to be human and we become human through that through that engagement. When we think about the the virtue of docility, I think we we sometimes um, focus on on the student as the recipient of something from a professor. But in in a, a university of Dallas setting, in a St. John's setting, at a Trinity school, um, you the student and the professor are both, as it were, students of this long tradition, and the tradition has a a a um, 
a governing force, but it's it's not a tradition that's a sort of of un uh, interrupted sequence of progressive truths, right? It's it's really one of of conflict. Yes, and and you know we we read Plato against Aristotle, we read Augustine against Plato, we read Aquinas against Augustine. We and 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 I'm just looking at one little vein here, right? So the the kind of education that we provide is one that teaches students how to engage in conflict, how to engage in right. argumentation without quarreling. And, and that seems to me truly a lost art in our culture today. I'll say so. I mean, I, uh, you, in our, just take our political climate. I mean, people cannot even – I mean, friendship is essential to all of this, it seems to me. Like friendship in the richest sense, being capable and willing to make the good of another your own good. And friendship in education is essential. Friendship in politics is essential. But it's hard to – you don't see too many friendships among people who disagree with each other anymore. Mm-hmm. Um but – and as, as you say, I mean there has to be a kind of shared uh, commitment in the classroom led by the most advanced student, namely the professor. We call them tutors at St. John's. And, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and it's, not, it's not a passive receiving of, of, you know, of, of a particular program or certainly not indoctrination. That distinguishes Dallas, by the way, from many, many other uh, you know, uh, universities where the – education is really just a kind of form of indoctrination. Right. Um, I'll tell you something funny. When we were at St. John's, and this is, I'm sure, true here, probably even more so, um, you know, we, we read books basically out of any historical context at St. John's. <laughs> so you basically read, like, I don't know, I just know the order in which these books are written. I don't even, I couldn't tell you when many of these books are written. Yeah. I had to look on Wikipedia to find out what World War One was about. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so I mean, it's, there's like a lot of missing, you know, historical context in the pure great books approach of St. John's. But to the point that you're talking about, the kind of maturing as a person, breaking yourself down and then maturing as a, as a thinker and a reader and a, and a person who's part of a community of learning where argumentation is part of that, but it's, it's done in a spirit of friendship uh, and charity. Um, <laughs> at the, so we, you know, so end of sophomore year, we sort of pivot from Aquinas and Augustine and Anselm and before that Plato and Aristotle and Homer and so on. And then you hit Descartes. And you're like, well, I'm not really sure what's happening here. And then like at the end, at the beginning of junior year, you hit, you know, after Descartes and the early moderns, you hit Kant. You're like something in Rousseau, like something terrible has happened. I yeah. can't say what it is exactly, <laughs> right. but it right. feels really bad. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like that's a kind of indication of, of, of the freedom that you obtain by being humble in the face of the books and engaging in good faith discourse yeah. uh, in this community of learning. Yeah. Um, I noticed that that you have a, a book um, that's going to be coming out soon, Classics of Catholic Culture, and and you and Alistair McIntyre are, are both editors. It's an annotation on uh, a collection of, of texts, I'm assuming. Could you could you tell us about that yeah, book and, it's, and, when, it's, and when to expect it's it? Still, well, it's going to be a little while. I mean, it, it's um, – it's after Dobbs was granted, cert was granted, I cleared the decks, and basically my whole job between now and the time – it will be the case is announced in at the end of June in 2022 is to, is to use all of my energies to try to educate the public and the scholarly community about, and, and my lost students mm-hmm. in the, in the more public, more broadly speaking about that case. And so I, I've, I've sort of tabled a lot of my writing projects until that happens, but this was Alistair's idea. Alistair came up with this really interesting idea that there should be a canon of classics uh, written by Catholic writers um, over time, uh, that every every educated Catholic person should know, and mm-hmm. so we're still in the very early stages of of selecting those texts and finding 
people who will write very short annotations at the beginning of selections that he and I are mm-hmm. curating with my colleague, Margaret Cabanis at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. She's a, a wonderful editor and, and thinker as well in her own right. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're pretty early in the process, but Alistair has some very definite ideas about what should go in there. And, <laughs> I'm sure he and, does. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a big thing to, to disagree with Alistair, not just because the process, I mean, he's a lovely man. And so it's not, he doesn't make it unpleasant to disagree with him, but like, he's almost always right. And so it's, 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 it's with trepidation that one raises even a kind of response yeah, <laughs> yeah. that other than saying, yes, Alistair. Yeah, and how do you make a book like that less than a thousand pages? Yeah, I, exactly. I, I it's going to be a lot of, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of, uh, of, of difficult choices. And, um, and, and I think what Alistair wanted to do with it also is to create a sort of module for Catholic high school students. And it's mm-hmm. going gonna, gonna to be for a general audience. It's yeah. not a, a high scholarly book. It's, yeah. it's more for a general audience of Catholics who want to be informed of what kinds of literary works should they be familiar with and kind of to whet their appetite to, to dig deeper after the fact. Well, I want to encourage all of our listeners to be on the lookout for that book and be on the lookout for the work that Professor Sneed is doing in order to um, address our, our current um, legal situation, very exciting moment. You said December first is when uh, you think the uh, the case will be concluded. the argument. The well, argument scheduled okay. for December first. It won't be decided probably until the end of June. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you for being our guest, and thank you for the work you do. It is it is truly noble and ennobling, and we're deeply grateful. Well, thank you. I'm grateful for your work and for the University of Dallas. It is an essential institution.